You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 443 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this show, we're going to pick right back up with our look at what happened in 1863. We looked at April and May last time, so with this episode, we'll start off with, yes, you guessed it, June. On June 3, 1863, a quote-unquote peace convention organized by former mayor and prominent copperhead Fernando Wood takes place in New York City. In its coverage the following day, the New York Times will call the gathering, quote, one of the largest recently held in the city and declare that it's characterized by, quote, its open, straightforward, avowed sympathy with the principles and the cause of the secessionist. Okay. Well, in Washington, the War Department announces on June 4th that, contrary to promises otherwise, black soldiers will be paid less than their white comrades. While whites receive $13 a month, black soldiers will be paid $10 a month and will have $3 deducted for clothing, whereas whites receive a clothing bonus. This announcement provokes a storm of protest from black soldiers, their white officers, and many civilians, including prominent black abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who has already thrown his considerable influence behind the effort to recruit black soldiers. Black soldiers aren't given the option of leaving the service if they object to this radical and discriminatory policy reversal, so many decide that their only recourse is to refuse to accept any pay until it's reversed, despite the hardship this will cause them and their families, many of whom will be turned away from white-run charities in the North as the pay strike continues. Three days after the War Department's announcement, on June 7th, at a federal outpost at Milliken's Bend on the Mississippi River above Vicksburg, three newly formed and barely trained black regiments, along with the 23rd Iowa and with the assistance from of two Union gunboats, turned back a Confederate attack after fierce fighting. The black regiments suffer some 35% casualties, and some of the captured are reportedly murdered. Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana will note that the valor of the black soldiers at Milliken's Bend, quote, 
completely revolutionized the sentiment of the Army with regard to the employment of Negro troops. I heard prominent officers who formerly in private had sneered at the idea of the Negroes fighting express themselves after that as heartily in favor of it. On June 8th, Robert E. Lee writes to Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon, saying, There is always a hazard in military movements, but we must decide between the positive loss of inactivity and the risk of action. Even as he writes to Seddon, Lee has already started marching his army north and west, away from Fredericksburg, toward the Shenandoah Valley the beginning of the movement that will take the Army of Northern Virginia across the Potomac River and then up into Pennsylvania. On June 9th, Federal horsemen commanded by Alfred Pleasanton crossed the Rappahannock River upstream from Fredericksburg and surprised Jeb Stuart, initiating the greatest cavalry battle of the war at Brandy Station. Much of the fighting is conducted dismounted, but Fleetwood Hill is the scene of flashing sabers, banging pistols, and furious charges and countercharges. After hours of combat, the Federal horsemen withdraw back across the Rappahannock, leaving Jeb Stuart in possession of the field so he can claim victory. But Brandy Station has been a near-run thing and in reality is more a draw the Union cavalry surprised Stuart and then matched the rebel horse soldiers blow for blow. The hard-fought battle at Brandy Station removes the sense of inferiority that has haunted the Federal troopers in previous engagements, and from this day forward, they'll fight with a new sense of confidence. The next day, June 10th, Abraham Lincoln is concerned by a telegram he's received from Hooker. Fighting Joe proposes moving against Richmond rather than following the rebels as they march away from Fredericksburg, but Lincoln tells him, quote, I think Lee's army, and not Richmond, is your true objective point. On June 14th, Major General Nathaniel Banks calls on the Confederate garrison that's under siege at Port Hudson, Louisiana, to surrender, and when they do not, Banks orders a second all-out assault on the rebel strongpoint that sits on the Mississippi River downstream from Vicksburg. But this federal attack is as unsuccessful as the first, which we talked about in the last episode. This second failure means Banks' siege of Port Hudson, like Grant's siege of Vicksburg to the north, will continue. In Virginia, also on June 14th, Dick Ewell's Corps, which is leading Robert E. Lee's advance down the Shenandoah Valley toward the Potomac River, meets and defeats more than 6,000 Yankees commanded by Major General Robert Milroy at the Second Battle of Winchester. After attacking and nearly overrunning the Federal garrison of Winchester during the fighting that begins late in the day at 6 p.m., Yule's troops then position themselves nearby at Stevenson's Depot to intercept the fleeing Yankees as they try to march off and escape in the darkness. When all is said and done, 2nd Winchester is an absolute disaster for the Federals as Yule takes some 4,000 prisoners and clears the way for the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia 
to march down the Shenandoah Valley to the Potomac River. On June 17th in Georgia, the Confederate ironclad CSS Atlanta runs aground after a brief battle with two Union warships at the mouth of the Wilmington River, and she's forced to surrender. Adding insult to injury, the Federals will incorporate Atlanta into their blockading squadron. Also on the 17th, at Vicksburg, Mrs. Mary Webster Lobro occupying one of the many caves in which the town's civilians have taken refuge from federal shelling, is suffering through a heavier-than-usual bombardment when she's startled by shouts and, quote, a most fearful jar and rocking of the earth, followed by a deafening explosion such as I had never heard before. The cave filled instantly with smoke and dust. I stood with a tingling, prickling sensation in my head, hands, and feet, and with a confused brain. Yet alive was the first glad thought that came to me. Child, servants, all here and saved. A mortar shell had struck the corner of the cave, fortunately near the brow of the hill, gone obliquely into the earth, exploding as it went, breaking large masses from the side of the hill. A portion of the earth from the roof of my cave had been dislodged and fallen. Aside from this, it remained intact. Also on June 17th in Virginia, Union cavalry, trying to keep track of the northward movement of Robert E. Lee's army, battles successfully to dislodge Confederate horsemen from the village of Aldi. One of the Federals, Captain George Armstrong Custer, leads a heroic charge that will be a factor in his upcoming promotion at the age of 23 to Brigadier General. The next day, June 18th, an irritated General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, who is the recipient of messages from alarmed Northern governors, telegraphs Joseph Hooker, telling him, quote, They are asking me, why does not General Hooker tell where Lee's army is? He is nearest to it. End quote. Well, despite the workings of the Army of the Potomac's Bureau of Military Information, which Hooker established, and despite the ample evidence provided by Milroy's defeat at Winchester that the rebels are moving north down the Shenandoah Valley, there's still considerable uncertainty as to what part of Lee's army is where. Hooker and his chief of staff, Dan Butterfield, claim they cannot, in Butterfield's words, quote, go boggling around until we know what we are going after. But some of Hooker's lieutenants are concerned about his lack of urgency and decisiveness in pursuing the Confederate Army while it's on the move. The Army of the Potomac's Provo Marshal, Marcena Patrick, will confide to his diary that Hooker, quote, acts like a man without a plan and is entirely at a loss what to do or how to match the enemy or counteract his movements. On June 20th, Pursuant to a December 31, 1862 Act of Congress and a Presidential Proclamation of April 20, 1863, 50 western counties formerly part of the Confederate state of Virginia are today admitted to the Union as the state of West Virginia under a state constitution stipulating those children born of slaves after July 4, 1863 are free 
and all other slaves are free as of their 25th birthday. On June 22nd, Ewell's Corps leads the Army of Northern Virginia across the Potomac River and into Maryland. A.P. Hill and James Longstreet will have the men of their corps across within two days. Also on the 22nd, out in Mississippi, at Vicksburg, where the Yankees have finished digging a tunnel in order to place a mine under a section of the Confederate lines, it's detonated and results in a massive explosion. One federal engineer officer says the explosion burst up from the ground, quote, until it looked like an immense fountain of finely pulverized earth mingled with flashes of fire and clouds of smoke, through which could occasionally be caught a glimpse of some dark objects, men, gun carriages, etc. When the dust settles, federal soldiers rush into the huge crater and begin a bloody struggle against the Confederate defenders. An Illinois soldier recalls, quote, hand-to-hand conflict rages, hand grenades and loaded shells are lighted and thrown over the parapet by the rebels as you would play ball, as many as a dozen men being killed and wounded at one explosion. Many a brave hero laid down his life in that death hole. For 48 hours, the Federals pay a terrible price to hold the crater and attempt to push beyond it but it proves impossible to expand their foothold in the Confederate lines, and they're finally withdrawn. The siege of Vicksburg will continue. In Middle Tennessee, where there's been a stalemate between the opposing armies since the New Year's Battle of Stones River, the commander of the Federalist Army of the Cumberland, William Rosecrans, is finally ready to start his long-awaited offensive, and on June 23rd, Old Rosie launches his Tullahoma campaign. It's a brilliant campaign of maneuver which, by July 3rd, will force the Confederate commander, Braxton Bragg, to withdraw completely from Middle Tennessee and back to Chattanooga. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The calm routine of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is shattered on Friday, June 26th, when rebel soldiers from Jubal Early's division of Yule's Corps march into town. After entering Pennsylvania, Yule's Corps is headed for the Susquehanna River in Harrisburg, but Early stops in Gettysburg just long enough to write out a list of demands for the town, including 60 barrels of flour, 6,000 pounds of bacon, 1,000 pairs of shoes, 
and 500 hats. Borough Council President David Kindlehart, after consulting the council, instead invited Early to search the town's shops for supplies, but little was found. The next morning, Old Jube and his troops continue on their way eastward toward the Susquehanna River, and the residents of Gettysburg breathe a sigh of relief that the rebels are gone. On June 27th, as the Army of the Potomac marches north through Maryland in pursuit of the Confederate Army that's invading Pennsylvania, a dispute between Hooker and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck about whether the garrison at Harper's Ferry should evacuate the place and join him leads Hooker to request, quote, that I may at once be relieved from the position I occupy. Hooker's request to be relieved is almost certainly a gambit designed to pressure Halleck to release the garrison of Harper's Ferry to him. But instead of backing down, Halleck passes Hooker's request along to Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was willing to stick with Hooker even after the debacle at Chancellorsville, but he has been growing more and more concerned about Hooker's ability to deal with the unfolding crisis as the Confederates strike deeper into south-central Pennsylvania. In the end, although replacing Hooker in the middle of an ongoing campaign is risky, the president accepts Hooker's resignation and appoints George Gordon Meade to command the Army of the Potomac. Meade takes command on June 28th. The next day, the 29th, Alpheus Williams, a Brigadier General in the Army of the Potomac, writes to his daughters, telling them, quote, It is reported that the rebels are 110,000 strong in infantry with 20,000 cavalry. I think the report is greatly exaggerated, but they have been all winter recruiting by conscription while we have been all winter running down. Still, I don't despair. On the contrary, now with a gentleman and a soldier in command, I have renewed confidence that we shall at least do enough to preserve our honor and the safety of the Republic. But we run a fearful risk because upon this small army, everything depends. On June 30th, writing to his mother from Washington, poet Walt Whitman reports on one of the city's prominent citizens, quote, Mr. Lincoln passes here every evening on his way out to the soldier's home, where the Lincolns spend the hot summer evenings. I noted him last evening about half past six. He was in a carriage, two horses, guarded by about thirty cavalry. He looks more careworn than even than usual, his face with deep-cut lines. A curious-looking man, very sad. He was alone yesterday. As he came up, he first drove over to the house of the Secretary of War on K Street, sat in his carriage, while Stanton came out and had a 15-minute interview with him. I can see from my window. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, on the last day of June, as intelligence suggests that Lee's army is concentrating around Chambersburg or Gettysburg, George Meade orders Major General John Reynolds, commanding the left wing of the Army of the Potomac, to move to Gettysburg. Brigadier General John Buford and two brigades of Union cavalry have already arrived in Gettysburg and are keeping a watchful eye on the roads leading into town. The Federal horsemen are observed from afar by a Confederate infantry brigade, whose commander reports that Yankee cavalry are in Gettysburg, 
and A.P. Hill determines to move in that direction the following day. On Wednesday, July 1st, A.P. Hill's reconnaissance toward Gettysburg leads to an engagement between rebel infantry from Henry Heath's division and John Buford's Union cavalrymen. The combat that morning is the start of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Buford's horsemen delay the Confederates long enough for Federal infantry to begin to arrive on the battlefield. John Reynolds is killed as he leads a Wisconsin regiment from the Iron Brigade into position. As Robert E. Lee and more and more troops from both sides arrive on the scene, the Federals are forced to retreat through Gettysburg after bitter fighting to the north and west of town. By that evening, though, the Yankees have regrouped on the high ground south of Gettysburg, forming part of what eventually will be a fishhook-shaped line that includes place names that will soon be legendary, Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Little Round Top. Late that night, George Meade arrives on the battlefield, while across the way, Robert E. Lee is determined to renew the contest the following day. Out in Vicksburg on July 1st, John Pemberton sends a message to each of his four division commanders, quote, Unless the siege of Vicksburg is raised or supplies thrown in, it will become necessary very shortly to evacuate the place. You are, therefore, requested to inform me as to the condition of your troops and their ability to accomplish a successful evacuation. But weeks of reduced rations and the prolonged stress of the siege have taken their toll on the men's strength and morale, and the division commanders report that a breakout is no longer possible. Two of them advise Pemberton to surrender immediately. On Thursday, July 2nd, leading 2,500 Confederate horsemen, John Hunt Morgan sets out from Tennessee and begins the longest cavalry raid of the war. During 25 days of almost constant riding and combat and covering more than 700 miles through Kentucky, southeast Indiana, and southern and eastern Ohio, Morgan will divert some 14,000 federal troops from other duties and spark the call up of over 100,000 local militiamen before he is trapped on the north side of the Ohio River and finally captured on July 26th, about 40 miles from Pittsburgh. At Gettysburg on July 2nd, despite objections from James Longstreet, who favors a turning movement to the south, Robert E. Lee orders an attack against the federal left, which begins, under Longstreet's command, about 4 o'clock that afternoon. Over the next three and a half hours, in some of the most intense combat of the entire war, the soldiers of 11 Confederate brigades pitch into the Union left and center, like so many successive waves of an angry sea crashing on the shore. Launching their own assault on the Federal right a few hours after Longstreet's blow against the Union left, portions of Ewell's Corps will also fight valiantly, sweeping up Culp's Hill and East Cemetery Hill in a series of dramatic nighttime attacks. Several times that day, the Federal Army seemed to teeter on the brink of destruction, 
but the rebel gains would prove fleeting, as each of their attacks was either thwarted by the timely arrival of Union reinforcements, or hindered by lack of support. Casualties are appalling on both sides, but the day will end with the Army of the Potomac still holding much the same ground it had occupied that morning. On Friday, July 3rd, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens sets out from Richmond aboard a boat bearing a flag of truce, sailing down the James River. Acting with the full approval of Jefferson Davis and his cabinet, Stevens will approach the Union lines around Norfolk bearing a peace proposal from Davis to Abraham Lincoln. Stevens, who knows Lincoln from the time they served together in Congress, hopes that his diplomatic mission, undertaken in connection with Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, will secure Confederate independence. In Mississippi on the 3rd, Pemberton leaves the Confederate lines under a flag of truce to meet with Ulysses S. Grant, whom he knows from their service together in Mexico. Grant reiterates his demand, made in an earlier message, that the Vicksburg garrison surrender unconditionally. Pemberton, however, is reluctant to agree, so he returns to his own lines, and negotiations continue by letter until late into the night. At Gettysburg, the day opens with Union artillery fire ripping into the Confederate positions at the base of Culp's Hill, beginning a seven-hour struggle that is the longest sustained combat of the battle. The rebels make repeated attempts to push the Yankees off the hill, but they fail to gain the heights. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee, who is convinced his men came within a hair's breadth of inflicting a fatal blow on the enemy the day before, launches a massive attack against the center of the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. The Confederate attack known to history as Pickett's Charge, is the most famous assault of the Civil War. But, gallant though the effort was, it fails. The Federal infantry and artillery holding the ridge successfully repulsed the charge after desperate fighting when the charging rebels momentarily pierced the Union lines. The spot where the Confederate infantry momentarily pierced the Federal lines on Cemetery Ridge on the afternoon of July 3, 1863, has come to symbolize the supposed high watermark of the Confederacy, the point where many, with hindsight mixed with nostalgia, believe rebel fortunes crested before receding. On the 4th of July, at Gettysburg, exhausted troops and overwhelmed medical workers survey the carnage. Over the past three days, over 45,000 men on both sides have been killed, wounded, or gone missing. Union nurse Sophronia Bucklin will write about her arrival after the battle, quote, Everywhere wounded men were lying in the streets on heaps of blood-stained straw, Everywhere there was hurry and confusion, while soldiers were groaning and suffering. As the evening descends and the rain, which has been falling since midday, now grows heavier, Robert E. Lee retreats from Gettysburg. Miles of marching men and wounded loaded in wagons struggle along the muddy roads. By then, Abraham Lincoln has announced to the country that, quote, 
News from the Army of the Potomac is such as to cover that army with the highest honor and to promise a great success to the cause of the Union. Out in Mississippi on July 4th, John C. Pemberton and the Confederate garrison of Vicksburg march out of their lines, stack their arms, and surrender to Ulysses S. Grant, who thinks the capture of the Gibraltar of the West is so significant that he will later write in his memoirs, quote, The fate of the Confederacy was sealed when Vicksburg fell. In Washington on the 4th, after a cabinet discussion about Alexander Stevens' proposed visit to the Capitol, and with the good news from Gettysburg already in hand, Abraham Lincoln sends word that the Confederate Vice President's request to pass through the Union lines is denied. On July 9th, six days after Meade's victory at Gettysburg and five after Grant's capture of Vicksburg, the Confederate garrison at Port Hudson surrenders to Nathaniel Banks, ending the siege of the last rebel strongpoint along the Mississippi. With the river now in Federal hands along its entire length, from north to south, the Confederacy is split in two, and Abraham Lincoln will declare, The father of waters again goes unvexed to the sea. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is, If We Are Striking for Pennsylvania, The Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia March to Gettysburg, Volumes 1 and 2 by Scott L. Mingus and Eric J. Wittenberg. Yep, this is a two-for-one recommendation, because these books came out after our coverage of Gettysburg here on the podcast, but they're excellent and we wanted to take the opportunity to bring them to your attention now. So, there you go. Don't forget you can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also on the website, you can find info on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Chris C., Greg H., David B., Andy L., and Julie M. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.